everyone, it's Imogen from Squarepeg. So back when we could travel, before the pandemic, before the year ticked over into 2020, we gathered all of our founders together in San Francisco for a few days. It was autumn, or fall, in the US, and it was beautiful. Our founders flew in from Tel Aviv, Jakarta, New York, Melbourne, Berlin, Singapore, Sydney, and more, and though we were all battling the time zone complexity and jet lag, right away, I could tell that it was unbelievably energizing to have everyone together in the same room. As part of this program, we carved out time to welcome some world-class founders, investors, advisors to come and give us an off-the-record talk to the group about their experience. And while literally every session bar one got incredible feedback, there was one discussion that was just so good, it left everyone kind of stunned. Like it had literally impressed people into silence. And that talk was with Alad Gill. Today's episode explores what it's like to build, invest in, and advise some of the best startups in the world. It is full of real experience, and I'm so excited for it. It's also a special one because it's an episode that coincides with the launch of our new weekly newsletter. We're calling it All Signal, and it's a weekly dispatch of the best content, tech news, and jobs we've come across. Each week, we're alternating the lead between a podcast episode and a long-form piece of content written by one of my brilliant colleagues. And truly, it's good. You can subscribe to All Signal at spc.vc. That's spc.vc. The first one goes out in the next few hours, so don't miss it. Okay, to a lot. So I think fundamentally, you know, I always wanted to do things that were going to be impactful and uh, useful to society and things like that. And so, for example, in high school, I was really into anti-aging and longevity and, you know, doing things there. Um, but I never had a, a big moment where I was like, oh, my gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if I eventually sold a, a company to a future social network or something? Um, and I think a lot of these sort of founder stories tend to be made up. You know, there's these retrospectives where, oh, Larry Page, when he was a little kid, was always searching for things and therefore he started Google. But you never hear about the founder always caring a lot about compliance and therefore starting a compliance SaaS company. You know, when they were a little kid, they were always making sure everybody was doing the right thing from a regulatory perspective. So I I just feel like a lot of those things tend to be really overblown. And then um, in hindsight, you sort of weave these threads together to create a cohesive story. And of course, it really is that person who, when they were really young, they always cared about something and they eventually did it. But I think, you know, most people's careers and lives that I've seen tend to be random walks. And if they choose a handful of very good guiding principles, those walks sometimes are fruitful. If we look at Alad's career so far as a walk, fruitful might be an understatement. He's an investor or advisor to some of the most impressive companies in the world, including Airbnb, Pinterest, Stripe, Wish, and many, many more. He's the co-founder of Collagenomics. He was the co-founder and CEO of Mixer Labs, which was acquired by Twitter, where he went on to be a VP and helped scale the company. And before that, he worked at Google, back when they were a fraction of the size they are today. Yeah, Google, uh, when I joined it, was I think around 1,500 people. This was um, sometime in 2004. 
And it grew from 1,500 people to, I think, like 15,000 people or something like that over three and a half years. So incredibly fast growth. You know, they added uh, 12,000 people um, over that short period. And it was really a moment in time where the tech industry had actually just collapsed, right? So the big internet bubble had happened and then deflated. There'd been enormous numbers of layoffs and um, people leaving the area because they couldn't get jobs. And so it was, a, it, was a, it was a pretty bad time in Silicon Valley. And then Google was kind of emerging from the ashes. And it sucked up a lot of the best talent from all the other companies because it was one of the few companies that was really hiring at any scale during that moment in time. A few years after that, some other big companies like Facebook came along and scooped up some more of the Silicon Valley talent. But alas, says for a moment in time, Google was one of the only places hiring the best. But that doesn't mean that when he joined, the company had it nailed. It was a little bit of a mess, right? And in a good way, in a bad way. It was a mess in that it was growing incredibly rapidly and it was breaking. Things were breaking all the time at the company in terms of organization and other things. Larry actually... Um, I think right around then said that he didn't want middle managers anymore. And so they got rid of all middle managers. And so every director of engineering had 100, 150 reports or 50 to 150 reports, which meant they never did one-on-ones with anybody. And obviously that made things really tough for all the people who worked for them. And so that was a big negative, but a big positive of that is it created an enormous gray market for talent. So for example, the way that I really kicked off the mobile efforts there was by trying to convince people from other teams to come and start moonlighting on my team. Um, and so I think it was a way to actually create this really innovative bottoms up culture inadvertently. I don't think that was necessarily the goal. Maybe it was, but, um, that's kind of a side effect of it. So that was one big interesting takeaway is just, um, growth covers up for a lot of mistakes. Elad started Google's mobile team working to build functionality that we take for granted today, but he also worked on their AdSense products. All up, he was at Google for almost three and a half years and his key takeaways are pretty applicable to everyone. It also really struck me that companies that innovate early keep innovating and companies that innovate late never do it again. And you see this as certain startups. You hit a certain scale, you start having this core engine that's really working. And a subset of companies say, we're only going to focus on this core engine. And then they kind of forget how to ever do anything again. You know, 10 years later, they go public and they only have one thing they've ever done. And then other companies very early on in their life say, we have this core engine that's working, let's start plowing resources into other things as well and fund other things with this core engine. And so Google actually did that quite early. And I think that's why they ended up doing things like Waymo and self-driving cars and why they ended up actually doing things like Android and other things that at the time were sort of less clear in terms of product areas. And so um, that was another really big takeaway for me from Google was just, if you really wanna keep innovating, you have to do it early on in the life of a company. One of the things that Alad really believes in is building your network. He's seen in Silicon Valley how talent moves in waves. When someone joins a new company, they often bring with them their network. And if you're at an early stage of your career, especially, but all the way throughout, really invest in the people that you spend time with. And you need or you want to plug into a core network early in your career if you can because then that network will work with you for the rest of your life in different ways and people will pop up in all sorts of places. So for example, I think Stripe is sort of that right now. They have this immense depth of talent and that talent over time is gonna go to every great company out there, or the next set of great companies, I should say. And that means that people who are at Stripe now will know you know, key people at every company that's sort of relevant in Silicon Valley in a couple of years. And I think that's a very powerful effect.
2007, Alad left Google to co-found Mixa Labs. You know, it's interesting. When people leave big companies, I think sometimes they build products that made a lot of sense in the context of that big company or the past versus the future. And so the very first thing we built at Mixer Labs was a location-driven sort of content site. And it was in some sense, I think, ultimately in hindsight, optimized for SEO or other things that were really important at the time, but weren't really the future, right? The future was mobile and APIs and developer platforms and all this stuff. And the very first developer platforms were just coming out then, you know, like Twilio was an example or Heroku. Um, I think it just launched right around then. And so as we were iterated on product, we eventually went in the direction of building one of the first API-centric products, like a developer tooling company, effectively. And um, it took us a while to sort of, in a while, you know, six or 12 months, but that's a long time for a startup. Um, it took us a while to sort of realize that, you know, we should be focused on the future, not the past in some sense. And I think the other thing that you really learn once you leave a larger company is that, and, you know, I'd worked at startups before Google, so I already knew this lesson, but I see a lot of people misunderstand distribution and success of companies. And so they'll launch something at a Facebook or Google or Square or whatever it is, and it'll get instant adoption and they'll say, oh my gosh, I'm a product genius. When in reality, they're just in the funnel of a massive user stream, right? There's millions or billions of people using the products every day. So therefore, if a fraction of them adapt it, you have instant adoption at scale. And so you have to kind of relearn how to get distribution and what are new open channels for distribution and things like that. So I, I think there's a lot of sort of key lessons uh, from starting a company like that. Um, obviously, the last one is, you know, attracting talent when nobody cares about you and how do you recruit and, and um, retain great people. This is something that he gets asked about a lot. And often when it comes to recruiting, people want to know a playbook. They want to know what the magic bullet is. And Alad's answer is that there really isn't one. The reality is it's just a grind, right? You just have to grind through large numbers of people. And most people won't be interested in what you're doing, and that's okay. And similarly, you won't be interested in most people as potential employees for different reasons. And so you just have to figure out how to turn the crank and just um, go through large numbers of people rapidly and what are all the small tactics that allow you to do that effectively in the context of a very early stage startup. Most very early stage companies tend to hire people that are in their network. And so then it comes down to, well, how do you mine your network effectively? And who do you reach out to? And how do you convince them to help you? And all the rest of it. One mistake that some companies coming out of a place like a Google or Stripe or, um, you know, name the company uh, sometimes do is they hire everybody that they know out of that company. And then they basically clone that company culture and approach. And it becomes a little bit too monolithic. And so a friend of mine started a, a company out of Google. And I remember I went to his offices and it looked like Google. It had the food bins, it had the color scheme. It literally felt like a little clone. And you you couldn't help but worry about them culturally, you know, because they, they hadn't really rethought how they were going to function as an organization outside of the mothership. So I do think things like that happen as well. But as we all well know, hiring isn't just about finding the most talented people out there. Often it's about finding the perfect pieces of the puzzle. And so I think with each role, you have certain deficiencies and you have certain things you're good at, and some of those things stick and some of them don't. I think the place that I see people screwing up is when they have a set of really core natural talents. And then instead of playing to those strengths, they try to round out all the things that they're actually going to be bad at forever. And so, for example, one person I used to work with was one of the best people leaders I've ever seen. You know, he actually came from an ex-military background and they did a bunch of like operations and he was just incredible at motivating groups of people, setting metrics, going after it, et cetera. But he was really terrible at sort of the analytics side of things. And he kept taking on analytics product projects so that he could prove to the world how good he was at it or so he could learn about how to do it. 
And the reality was he should have just hired somebody for his team and moved on with life. You know, it doesn't, you'd have to be great at everything. And you have to remember that um, startups and teams are a team sport, right? Like it's about the collective action. It's not about the individual action necessarily. Uh, and so one of my big lessons over multiple different roles is that playing to your strengths is actually a really good thing. And sometimes you don't need to fix your deficiencies yourself. You just need to hire somebody who is a good complement to that thing that you do. So one of the interview questions I like to ask, which is a really nice way of asking what are your weaknesses, is to ask well, who are people that are complementary to you that you want to hire under your team immediately, you know, who really round out things for you, <laughs> uh, because often that reveals the things that they're actually quite bad at. So Alad and his team built up Mixer Labs with him as a CEO. And while he was learning all about hiring, running a company, how to lead, he also learned how to sell a company. When Twitter approached us, we had built one of the really early developer infrastructure products. And at the time, Twitter had a very thriving developer ecosystem. They had hundreds of thousands of developers using the Twitter APIs in different ways. And we looked at sort of our options as a company because we had four years of cash and they basically offered to buy us. And by the way, the way they offered to buy us, it was very quiet first so that we could start to tell if they were interested because they'd say things like, oh, why don't, why don't you just come into our offices and meet with a big portion of our team and let's brainstorm ideas in terms of um, what it would look like if there was no barriers between our product and yours and we could just magically do things together. You know, it's very kind of transparent, although I don't think they intended it that way. Um, so we kind of went into the conversations thinking, well, maybe they want to do something and we should figure out if we want to do it. And we ended up selling to them for three or four reasons. Number one is they had this giant developer ecosystem and we thought that our product could end up impacting very large numbers of developers, which we found really exciting. Uh, we thought Twitter itself was a rocket ship and it was going to be a transformative company. There were a lot of early signs that it was going to be really important and that usage was picking up in all sorts of pockets that you normally wouldn't see. You know, yoga teachers were using it for different things and things like that. We thought our team would do very well there because our team were very strong engineers and the company at the time had a very lean engineering team. So we thought they could have great careers. And then financially, from an upside perspective, we thought the company could be worth many times what it was worth. At the time, it was about a billion dollar company. And we, we thought, oh, maybe it's going to be 10 times bigger. And so uh, when we calculated out, you know, dilution and everything else from further rounds of financings and outcomes and all the rest, we realized we'd probably do better on average if we just sold to them and let them 10x than if we um, try to just go it alone. Uh, so all those things kind of fed into a decision to sell to them. In the end, Alad was at Twitter for two and a half years, and he directed their search and geo products as well as worked as the vice president in corporate strategy. And in 2013... It was time for him to take on that founder role himself again. Yeah, there, there was a few different threads that came together that drove the formation of Color. Um, and it was always a very mission-driven company. Part of it was it was born out of my co-founder Altman's uh, personal story where, you know, his mother had had breast cancer twice. He'd had other relatives die of breast cancer. And that was because they had a hereditary mutation in the family in a gene known as BRCA2, um, which increased uh, the risk pretty dramatically of, of, of certain types of cancers in the family. And it was very hard for his mother and other family members to get that information. It was a long wait. It was very expensive. So there was a clear problem there. So that, that was one piece of it was just we wanted to do something that was useful and important. Um, you know, the two other parallel things were, you know, one is I have a PhD in biology. And so I, I worked a lot on cancer and aging and a few other things. And so I understood certain aspects of it pretty well. And uh, had worked in software, as had my co-founder and uh, one of our other co-founders, Nish, as, as well as Taylor, actually. All of us had worked in software. So, you know, we knew how to marry software and healthcare in certain ways that we thought, uh, you know, Taylor was an MD that we thought would be differentiated. And then lastly, there was this big 
wave of software starting to impinge on healthcare in ways that it hadn't before. And, you know, healthcare has always been a decade or two behind a technology adoption curves for a variety of reasons. And so um, we thought there was a real opportunity to just build something big in digital health. And at the time, there were very few digital health companies. And so we were a little bit early to that game, I think. And I should say most of that impact is um, due to the amazing work of Atman Laraki, who's the CEO of the company, is my co-founder. So he really transformed uh, Color from sort of a software stack for genomics and a, and a clinical genomics lab into a broad-based care delivery um, population health and research uh, platform. And at this point, what Color is doing is it's driving everything from, you know, million-person um, NIH research studies into diversity in the human genome on through to COVID care delivery and test delivery at, at very large scale. So for example, it's a big chunk of the software that's being used by the state of California in their central COVID lab. So the company has really morphed into this broad-based um, population health software stack with a clinical lab sort of attached to it as well. That's, that's a you know important part of what the, the set of services it can offer. We had uh, a few rounds while I was still CEO. We had some uh, other VCs like Coastal Ventures and Formation Aid and then General Catalyst. And a lot of it was just driven by people who were very interested in that intersection of healthcare and software and the implications of that intersection. And there, there weren't that many people actually doing it back then. You know, Andreessen didn't have their bio fund and they weren't really doing healthcare. And, you know, a lot of the... Um, Traditional venture firms actually weren't doing very much in this market segment. You know, ultimately, we thought that these people were all people were very thoughtful. They were thinking ahead. In some cases, we had longstanding relationships to the partners at these various firms. And we just thought that they could really help us along the way. And there are also people that we trusted. Of course, Alad hasn't just had experience looking for investors. He has a wealth of knowledge from the other side of the table as a really prolific and extremely successful angel investor. I started investing um, probably over a decade ago at this point, so it's been a long time. And I think at this point I've invested in 30 companies that are worth over a billion dollars, so unicorn companies. And I invested in 20 of those at the seed or Series A. So I'm involved with companies like Airbnb, Airtable, uh, Coinbase, Gusto, Instacart, um, PagerDuty, Pinterest, Stripe, Square. Uh, Notion, um, Retool, et cetera. So um, it's a variety of different companies. And I've also done quite a bit in crypto, um, you know, Coinbase, Anchorage, Bitwise, et cetera, crypto protocols like Coda and um, Ironfish and things like that. So it's sort of a, a mix of stuff. And from an investing philosophy perspective, I think I differ from a lot of early stage angels or investors in terms of I care a lot about the product market intersection. So what is the product? Who is it built for? And then are there any signs that the market really wants what you built? And I think teams are incredibly important, right? I mean, I've started a, com a company twice myself, so it's not like I denigrate the team side of it as, as a founder, but it's more that I found that really great founders in terrible markets tend to get crushed by those markets. And kind of mediocre founders sometimes in, bad, in great markets actually do incredibly well. And so sometimes you see these companies that have really executed terribly and they end up being five, 10, $20 billion companies, um, which is pretty incredible if you think about it. 
one of the things that we talked about as a challenge of being an investor is just how much there is going on in the world and how to filter through and find what's important and interesting to him. You know, there's an enormous amount of really interesting things I think happening in SaaS right now and everything between low code, no code, and RPA is sort of one general theme on through to companies that are rebundling other products, building connectors, you know, the five trains of the world or polytomic or things like that. So I think there's an enormous amount happening in SaaS. About a year and a half ago, I wrote a blog post saying, here's some areas that I think might be interesting. And one of them was consumer social. Like it really felt like uh, there was a, a shift in terms of both generation, but also um, content types and other things that would enable a new wave of social products. And I'm, I think Clubhouse may be an example of one of the early new versions of that. And I think that's a really exciting company. I think um, Substack may be another. And then I think at some point there will be something that may challenge Twitter over time. Um, but we'll see. Maybe that's incorrect. Um, so I think that's an interesting segment. But with so many products emerging in new fields and a stated objective to invest in the future, I asked him, how do you diligence a product or a service in a market that doesn't even exist yet? I think that there's almost two aspects to that. Um, I think one aspect is sometimes there's things that I get really excited about and I go deep in and it may not be relevant for a couple of years and suddenly you run across something and then you have context on the industry and you can ask what's changed and try and understand the company through that lens. And so I think over time you accumulate in some cases enough understanding of a market segment to be able to participate in it. So for example, I'm not a crypto expert, but I, I spent a lot of time a couple of years ago in crypto. And so now when I see something new in the crypto world, I can at least understand the basics and how does it fit in and what's important about it and things like that. But it took me a lot of time and it was tough work, you know, because um, there's a lot of complexity there and a lot of it is more technology driven versus anything else. And so I think sometimes it's just how, how deep of a dive are you willing to do? And even if it, if you just do it out of interest, you know, I just kind of love startups and I love markets and it's personal interest driven in some sense, it's almost like a hobby. And so that makes it really easy to go down some esoteric path. And then it turns out a couple years later, actually, that was really a valuable thing to do because it suddenly crops up again. The other piece of it is there is real diligence you can do, right? You can talk to customers, you can talk to potential customers, you can look at metrics. So if you don't understand a market very well, you can use those things. I mean, you either way want to use those things, but you can use those things as proxies. And there's all sorts of little signals that I think people don't really think about. So for example, one of the biggest debates is always the total addressable market for a company. How big is your market and what can you really take in that market? And there's all sorts of ways to try and assess it. But the hard part is that any company that's working in an obvious area probably doesn't have a lot of opportunity because if it's obvious, everybody's doing it. And so startups definitionally have to be working in something that's not obvious. And then that means how can you understand the market size, right? And so I think one of the biggest indicators of market size is just the growth rate of the company. If the company is compounding at a pretty good rate on a pretty good base, it actually implies the market is bigger than you may think. And conversely, if a company is growing really slow, there may be something wrong with the product, there may be something with the sales cycle, or maybe it's just a bad market, you know? <laughs> and so I think sometimes um, the pull of the market is, is, is in and itself an indicator of the size. So at this point in his life, Alad has been a founder, a CEO, a senior member at large tech companies, an investor, and more, all multiple times over. He shared what he thinks the tips are for recruiting and new hires, but one thing that we haven't talked about much yet is one of his main areas of expertise, how to know when to bring on a new hire, and how to scale your own team from there. I think there's a really big transition that happens in sort of the line between pre-product market fit and post-product market fit. 
So before you have product market fit, the only real goal you should have as a company is to find product market fit. And that usually means you have a smaller team, you're run more leanly, you shouldn't hire very many people, and really you're just trying to build a product and find somebody who wants the product. And that, that's, that's it. That's all that matters, right? And so everything is in purpose of that. Once you cross the line of product market fit, you suddenly have a second product, which is your company. And you have to really think ahead in terms of how to scale your company and build out your company at the same time that you're building the product. And if you're not thoughtful about that or you take too long on that, then everything will start breaking. And the analogy for an engineer would be, you know, when you have a product and the, the site starts scaling or the product starts scaling, you start thinking ahead on your back end. And you're like, okay, how do I scale my back end 10x or 100x? Or how do I make sure I can serve more and more users? And you end up with a roadmap and there's certain things you fix at certain times and you're proactive about it and all the rest of it, you plan ahead. And you need to do the same thing with your organization. Planning ahead for your organization to a lad often means putting real thought into who will be on your executive team early. Because often, especially if you're a first-time founder or you're a founder who hasn't really scaled something before, you wait too long to hire the people who can help scale things up and make sure that everything doesn't keel over. And a lot of first-time entrepreneurs or first-time scalers conflate the need for scale in order to hire an executive with needing executives in, in, in order to effectively scale. They, they flip those two concepts. And really, the whole reason you're bringing on executives is to help something scale. And so the second you have product market fit, you have to start thinking ahead and say, okay, um, maybe instead of hiring two SDRs, I should hire a head of sales because I'm going to need a repeatable sales process and bandwidth. And over time, I need to hire more people. And I'm going to need to lay a strong foundation for what I'm doing. Or maybe I need to bring on, you know, somebody who can drive recruiting more effectively because we're going to go from hiring one person every couple months to five people a month, you know, and so we need to professionalize or systematize how we do that. And so I think that's the biggest place where I see people or organizations break is during that scaling period when they haven't brought in executives yet. And in some, in many cases, they wait too long. At SquarePeg, we've seen founders build their teams in really different ways. Sometimes it's that typical early founder slowly building out their team and adding to their bench strength over time. And in other cases, like Athena Home Loans, for example, they hire their executive before they hire literally anyone else on the team. And a lot has experience in this too. I think it's by uh, hiring in people that you can learn from and convincing them that what you're doing is an interesting enough opportunity that it's worth it for them to join. And it's really interesting because when you look at a second time founder, they'll have like an executive team in their first 20 people. And I remember when I was a founder for the first time, I was like, why do they have three VPs and they're 20 people? This is insane. That's so stupid. Why are they so top heavy? And then the second time I started a company, I had been a VP at Twitter. My co-founder Amin had been a VP at Twitter. And then we hired a COO in our first like dozen people <laughs> because we just wanted to have people who could like take care of things and fix things and delegate and just run, you know, if, th if things started working. And so I think it's a big mental shift that you go through and you have to learn it. And often you learn it by something getting screwed up or you're seeing things break and then you learn it and then you, you start doing it. One of the other difficult challenges that most founders go through, particularly at the early stage, is recognizing that an early employee is no longer scaling with the business. Alad has some really specific advice around how to identify when this is happening, how to support the employee, and how to move on as a founder. 
what happens is you're either very loyal to those people and you don't want to displace them or have the tough conversation, or alternatively, you just kind of write it off as, oh, it's probably fine because you know they've done such great work before. And usually the signs that an executive is breaking is number one, they're really frazzled, they're showing up to things late, they're sending emails at two in the morning every night, they're late to things, things like that. Um, second is that they don't really have an org structure or plan that is cohesive or makes sense relative to the scale that you're really heading to and doesn't include enough senior people itself. So often they'll say, oh, we just hired two people here that are ICs and two people here are ICs and we're done. And that's your head of sales. And you're like, no, 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 no. You actually need like two VPs yourself and you need you know, the ability to actually ramp things up and have senior level conversations and all the rest of it. And so that lack of like a strategic org plan tends to be an issue. Um, they often also, if they're breaking, don't plan ahead. They don't come in and here's our 12 month roadmap and it's probably wrong, but here's what I think we can do and should do and, and the like. And then the last sign is usually that they can attract very senior people themselves. And that's usually a sign that, you know, perhaps it's the wrong person in the role to sort of go to the next level. And the hard thing with startups is if things are really working and scaling rapidly, every 18 months or 12 months or somewhere around that time frame. Uh, and in Google, it was probably every six months when it was scaling so rapidly. You just have a different company. You know, if you go from 200 people to 1,000 people, you have multiple new layers of the organization. You have new functions. You have new products. You, you have new customer channels. You may be internationalizing. There's so much complexity. And so you really do have a different company. And that means the people who are at the company before in certain roles may or may not be the right people for that new company that you're in right now. And that's nothing about them being good or bad people. It just means sometimes there are certain skill sets or experiences or depth of ability that um, they haven't developed or that in some cases they may never develop. And so you kind of have to figure out who's going to keep going and scaling rapidly with the company and who's sort of hit their limits. And therefore, how can you make sure to reward them for all the great work they've done, but make sure that you're not hurting the company by keeping them in a role that they aren't necessarily the right person for anymore? Listening to Alad, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you that he's written a book. How could someone with so much knowledge of this industry and such brilliant networks not share what he knows with the world? It's called The High Growth Handbook. It's brilliant, truly, and we keep a big stack of the book at our office and press them onto founders that visit. I'll put a link to the book in the description to the episode, but I really recommend buying it. Yeah, the book happened really organically. So people kept asking me the same questions for later stage companies. And while there's a lot written for early stage companies, there actually isn't much written about the late stages of scaling and how to do things. And so I, I initially wrote it almost as like a giant FAQ and I was gonna publish it as a website. And so I was two or three days from launch and I mentioned it to John Collison, one of the founders of Stripe, and he asked to take a look at it. So I sent him the link to the website and he circulated a couple of friends. And then um, he pinged me a few days later and just said, hey, can we publish it at Stripe? And so it was a very accidental thing. I wasn't trying to find an agent or a book publisher or anything else. And I'm, I'm really um, lucky that they asked to do that because it's kind of weird the degree to which having a physical artifact like a book changes the way societally that thing is perceived. I think if it was just a website, it would have less weight and less interest perhaps. And I think actually having this thing you can clunk down and give to people um, makes a big difference, which is fascinating because it, it starts to make you think about what are other sort of societal artifacts that have physical form that indicate quality or indicate other things. And, you know, how should we make use of those things in life? 
One of my favorite moments from the founder event that we hosted in San Francisco came right after Alat's talk. When the clapping and the thanking had died down, I noticed a bunch of people slowly reach down into their bags and pull out a dog-eared copy of the High Growth Handbook. It was really a very sweet moment. Yeah, I think um, the original outline for the book was, I think, two times longer than what was written as the book. In other words, only about a third of the content I wanted to write got written. And there's whole sections on sales and go-to-market, um, HR, finance, hiring a CFO, um, internationalization, remote work, like all those different topics uh, that I thought would be really great to cover. And I just, at some point, you have to just stop writing. So I think my hope is that sometime this year, we'll actually be releasing a sort of skinny zine-like addendum focused on sales and go-to-market and a few other topics. So hopefully that'll come out sometime this year. In terms of um, sections, I personally enjoyed the interviews because it was new content for me. I mean, I wrote a bunch of stuff, but you know, I, I found the different perspectives really interesting for me to learn from. And often I didn't agree with what people said, you know, which is fine. That's the whole purpose of the book and presenting those other viewpoints was like people said things that sometimes I just didn't think were correct. But that doesn't mean they're wrong. They may actually be correct. It's back to the contextual startup advice. So for them, maybe that was the right takeaway on certain things. Um, I thought Claire Hughes Johnson guide to guide to herself was really great. And I had to kind of convince her to include it. She's all, oh, nobody will think this is interesting. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is founder gold. You know, this is like amazing. Um, so I'm really glad she was willing to, to have me um, print her own version of that. And then, you know, really it's meant to be a handbook, right? It really is meant to be something that you flip through when you get to something. So for example, one founder who's running a multi-hundred person company called me today and he said, oh, one of my investors just reminded me to read your section on BD and hiring BD people because we're hiring a BD person. And, you know, now's the time for me to really read that one before I kind of skimmed over it. And so that's kind of the intention of it. It's just something that you can come back to almost like a, a lightweight reference guide or something. The inscription in the book to his wife contains the phrase, and suddenly everything is possible again. It's a nod to the book Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foa, and naturally, it caught my eye. Yeah, I think um, it was driven by the fact that my son had just been born. And um, in that book, it's really about how the author is now seeing everything again through the eyes of his son, right? Which is, you see somebody delighted by something that you completely forgot was interesting because it's just something you see every day and they're like, oh my God, a step. That's the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. There's a step here. Uh, and you realize that there's so many different paths that a life can take is back to the sort of Monte Carlo, Carlo simulation, which is, um, you know, your, your newborn could become an Olympic gymnast. They could become the CEO of a big company. They could uh, do all sorts of terrible things. Like all sorts of things could happen over the course of their life. But truly, there's endless possibility in that moment of birth and renewal. And so therefore, um, it's a good analog in some sense for startups, and it's a good analog for a lot of aspects of life. And so that newness actually creates enormous opportunity. Um, and so I thought that was a very compelling quote. Alad is actually working on a new side project. The name will probably change, he says, but for now you can find it online at Pluto.video. That's Pluto, like the planet. It's a spatial audio and visual product for people to be able to hold group events online. I kind of think about it as a 3D world that creates the conditions you need for serendipity. 
you place a whole group of people in there and then you kind of move around the world like you would a physical room. So the closer you are to other people, the louder that audio is. It allows you to have these really beautiful side conversations, much as you would in the real world. I don't know, honestly, if post-COVID we'll ever want to spend another minute using online video chat, but if there was one person I'd bet on to build the future, it would be a lad. It's also chock full of Easter eggs, so if that's your thing, I really recommend you check it out. That's it for this week's episode. A reminder that our weekly dispatch All Signal starts hitting inboxes tomorrow, so if you haven't already, head to spc.vc to subscribe. Thanks as always to Rami Sher, our wonderful producer, a lad for his time, and the Squarepeg team for their support to expand the series. See you next time. Thank you.